of Micah, verses 2 through 9. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then, he, then we will rise against him seven shepherds. We will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes down, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. The sensitivity on my mic. It's essing, essing. Great, thank you. That, that really helps. Uh, this is a, a, a favorite passage of mine. Uh, if you have been at this church for three years now, you have been on the three-year rotation of Advent readings. Uh, every three years, the readings repeat. And so uh, if you don't remember what we talked about three years ago, or two, two years ago, I, I suppose, uh, now you'll get to hear it again next year. Uh, we spent time in Isaiah. We spent time in Daniel. We've spent time this year in Malachi, Zephaniah, and now here we are in Micah. And this year, the final year in the three-year uh, cycle, is a time through the minor prophets. And just like last week when we covered Zephaniah 1, 2, and 3 in short summary, and then uh, in, in detail later only in one chapter, uh, and by Ze Zephaniah, I think I should have said Zechariah. Um, uh, today we're going to spend some time reviewing Micah in the context of how God was dealing with Israel. And this is important for us to understand because if you just pick up ver uh, chapter 5 and you hear uh, this promise that God gives to this town called Bethlehem, of which we all know uh, now that the Christ has been revealed, uh, at the time before the revelation of the promise, it may seem trivial. This is just kind of a blip on the radar in the, in the Minor Prophets. But actually, this is a great testimony concerning how God works. Everything that God does in time and space with his people is a revelation in some way of his nature and character. God never acts or never does anything that is discongruous or, or not congruous with who he is. That is, when he does something, he reveals something about his nature, about his heart. And God reveals his uh, wisdom as shaming the, the false wisdom of men and bringing it about through the promise that he gives and then fulfills to this small town called Bethlehem. And in that same promise is not only the promise of the Christ, but also of those brothers and sisters that he will have, that is the church, who will pick up his staff just like him. Here we see, and we'll look in great detail, about these other shepherds who come alongside. And the reason this message is called the shepherd of shepherds is because we're most often familiar, of course, scripturally, Christ is called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That is, he is a king over all the kings, and he is the Lord over all the lords. He's the power over all powers. But here, I think it's also important to see, not only is he the shepherd of his people, he's also the shepherd of those who are supposed to be in his people, shepherding not just his people, but the nations. 
God sends out his disciples after the resurrection in order to go get the nations. And it's important that we see that as a pastoral ministry. This is not uh, divide and conquer. This is not scorched earth. This is reclaim, redeem, and bring into God's fold. And it's only able, uh, only when we're able to see Christ doing that on our behalf that we can then begin to enter into that same ministry. Many Christians believe that they are supposed to bring their friends to church, and then at some height of supernatural experience, when the Spirit's really moving and the sermon's really hot and the readings are all aligned right and the planets are aligned, uh, then they will get saved sitting in a Sunday morning but actually, Christianity, for, for as long as it's uh, been practiced, has always been about the worship of Christ on Sundays. Sundays are not the conversion of unbelievers. Uh, Sundays are culminating in a time in which we're invited to partake of the body and the blood of our Lord as a sacred covenant reestablishment, a meal which is joyful and thankful and full of life and, and celebration. It's not really my goal to convert you uh, through these messages, although the word of God is sanctifying. It's actually my goal to point you to the one who converts you and the one who not only converts you, but sustains you and treats you like a shepherd treats his flock. And most people, it's actually very telling today that uh, there is now this popular level phrase uh, concerning people who are just led off into deception. We call them sheeple. Perhaps you've heard that contextual phrase. And just to engage with the culture a little bit, it's actually right to be a sheep in the flock of Jesus Christ. It's not an accusation. And, and in fact, those who do not behave like sheep, those are the ones who actually are deceived. It's kind of an interesting perspective, but our culture has, has uh, bought into the lie that if you are not your own source of authority, if you're not feeding yourself spiritually, so to speak, or intellectually, that you are somehow being brainwashed or deceived, it could not be anything further from the truth. Jesus Christ tends for his church like a wise and good shepherd, and it's right to wish to lay down in his pasture. And so we, I hope to do that by showing you the glory of Jesus Christ in time, in history, with his people, culminating to the mission of the church, and therefore your mission and my mission. So I want to look at only four aspects today, uh, not five. I couldn't uh, come up with a fifth one. That's a little joke. This promise to Bethlehem that shows up at the beginning is humble, and it's humble for a reason. It's God wishing to express his nature, his character of using small things. And that's really the context of this message is to encourage you not to despise small things. Christ's glorious dominion that he will come and have is a dominion that he establishes and not only establishes, sustains, and brings to great fruition. His dominion, which Isaiah says is an everlasting dominion and never passes away, is not alone over his people, but here we see it's also over the nations. Many, many people, many Christians believe that Christ is the Lord of the church in one way, and Christ is the Lord over the nations in a different, abstract, non-real way, in which he, his law is just generally applicable in some sort of natural law theory. Jesus Christ is Lord over the church and over the nations in the exact same way, because he's Lord over everything. He's not the Lord over the nations to bless them in their sin, but rather he's over the nations as Lord to correct their and discipline their waywardness and to bring them by the sword of the Spirit into his fold. Uh, this is the pattern that God shows over and over again, that those who are slain with his uh, sword are able to go back into the garden. Uh, we see this typified at the end of Genesis when there, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, there's a sword which is placed, which says, unless we come before God through the sword and through fire, typifying the sacrifice that Christ makes, we cannot come and stand before a holy God. And so Christ is to judge the nations and the church. His dominion is not over one versus the other. It's not special in one and abstract in another. Christ is truly Lord, and he really is shepherding his flock and beating the wolves, bears, and lions. That's what he's doing. He is also training his brothers to behave like him. 
We see now at the end of Christ's dominion, this passage in Micah, he brings out and highlights these other shepherds who will arise and live like this one shepherd. And then finally, we're going to look at a, uh, just a, a way that this applies that we can take courage when we're living in the days of small things. I, I think this is going to be especially helpful for our church as a whole, but also I hope that at the end you'll be able to, to see a lot of personal application that you yourself need to take confidence in the small things that God wants you to do. And I believe that the way you base that, or the way that you ground that, the way that you make it sure for the rest of your life, is to ground it in God's action with the promise that he gives to Bethlehem, and then fulfills through Jesus Christ. So, we're going to go through a very quick summary of Micah. If you want to get out your Bibles, you can turn to Micah 1. There's going to be, you can just glance at a verse or two, uh, then we'll move on to Micah 2, etc. We won't spend a lot of time. But the prophecy of Micah is a warning of destruction against Samaria and against Israel. You may remember in John 4, Jesus is engaging with this woman at the well, and she says to Jesus, he, after beginning to poke into her uh, spiritual life, she then kind of tries to divert attention to a theological debate, whether they should worship in Samaria or worship in Israel. And people who only read the New Testament think, oh, well, the Samaritans were these half-breeds who were not supposed to be Yahweh worshipers. They were just kind of these people who didn't get it right, and the Israelites were the ones who did get it right. And it's actually the case that the Old Testament bears out both of them were supposed to walk uh, in God's ways. They were both called to because all nations are called to. And so Samaria is judged just as well as Israel is. And the things that they are judged for in Micah 1 and 2 is drunkenness, oppression of the poor, greed, and, op and oppression by the rulers. That is, those who were established as kings, princes, judges, elders of cities were all guilty of governmental sin. They were not guilty of smoking cigarettes and drinking and, you know, whatever, whatever pet sins you want, even, even a very important sin, which wars against your souls, it, the lust of, of the flesh, sexual lust, desire for things, gluttony, desire for food, uh, an overabundance, desire in pleasure. Uh, these are not the sins that Israel is most judged for. They are most judged for their drunkenness, not drinking, but rather the oppression of the poor, their institutional consumption of poor people. That is, governmental policies which stole from people and uh, brought them to nothing. Micah uses the language of eating. And I think this is especially important when we see the showbread in the temple, the people of God were supposed to use their grain and their wine, and they were to give it as an offering to Yahweh. And that bread of the presence, the showbread, which sat before God's presence, was saturated in God's presence, and was then consumed by the priest who were eating with Yahweh before his presence as a reminder and a re-entering into the time when Moses and the elders of Israel were eating and drinking with God on the top of Mount Sinai. And here Micah indicts the nation of Israel and the Sumerians, uh, Samaritans uh, for their consumption of the people. Now the bread of the presence, of course, was made by the grain that was given by the people. In a very real way, God is tasting of the fruit of the, the promised land. It's not just the people who need to be righteous, but also God desires to receive fruit from his promised land. And so God is indicting the people, these oppressive leaders, these governmental rulers who are sinning, as taking the place of God. That is, he is the one who is supposed to be eating this bread, this representative of the people. And this communion which God wishes to have with his people is overthrown by these rulers, these leaders. And so Micah judges the people. Though Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, Micah says they will now face a time of spiritual blindness. Because they were, would not be a light, even the light that they had would be removed and then they would live in darkness. And here is when we begin to pick up, and Isaiah starts to speak as well, that the people who live in great darkness have seen a great light. The reason God judges Israel is because she is unwilling to share her light with the nations. 
when Jesus comes in the New Testament and is preaching in the Gospels, over and over again, he, he accuses the Pharisees of being those who walk around in darkness and they're sort of groping for anything they can put their hands on, a wall or a fence or a guardrail, but they themselves are blind. And then they promote themselves as the ones who are enlightened, those who are full of light, those who are guides. And so Jesus indicts the Pharisees for being blind guides. If this was really true, and the Pharisees had any reality, spiritually speaking, they would have simply renounced their ministries and stayed home instead of promoting themselves as rulers over the people. And these rulers, the Pharisees, are living in the same tradition of the rulers that Micah indicts at this time. They oppress the people with their spiritual oppression. Now, the the Pharisees weren't necessarily going around and establishing Uh, governmental law, but they were establishing cultural law, which subjected people under harsh penalties before they could worship Yahweh in synagogue or in the temple. And so Jesus Christ is all about delivering his people from oppressive rulers, and he, he judges them by no longer allowing them to sort of thrive in the uh, glimmer of his light. He's going to take it away completely, and they're going to walk in darkness. When God raises up his house in Micah, in Micah chapter 3 and 4, he says that it will be arisen and it will become like a chief of the mountains. Here, Micah chapter 4, if you're in your Bibles, verse 1 all the way through verse 7 is a quotation exactly word for word, except for in one place, uh, two nouns are in a different order in Isaiah. It's a quotation from Isaiah 2. Micah is speaking in concert with Isaiah concerning God's great revelation of forgiveness. Now, think about this. Israel has been chosen by God. She has gone into exile and has been returned to the land. And she faces oppression all the time because of her waywardness. And here, there is absolutely no hope that God will do anything about this. That, That is, they cannot keep the law. They cannot walk before God and be... Uh, be righteous. And here it looks like all hope is lost. And then Micah says, it shall come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the chief of the mountains. Here, just a chapter earlier, Israel had received this word from the Lord that said she would be cut off, she would be blind, her leaders would be oppressed, and they they would all fall underneath the sword. And here, Micah then gives a prophecy of amazing proportions. But it's not the amazing prophecy that I want to look at. I want to look at the small, tiny prophecy. When God makes this house, which he is building, he will be the judge over them. And then it says that he will establish a ruler. So not only is Yahweh going to bless Israel at some time, but then he is going to do it through this ruler. And then he tells where that ruler is going to come from. Even though this great city, the great and mighty Jerusalem, is going to fall under siege once again, this is now the second or third time that Jerusalem has been routed and and wiped away, Uh, even though that's going to happen to this great and mighty city, God gives a promise to a small, humble, little, almost non-city. Really, if you think about it, the size of Bethlehem, uh, we know from anthropological studies, and uh, it's essentially... If you've ever driven around Dayton, there's these little tiny townships outside of Dayton uh, that sometimes say population, and then they'll have like 3,000. One time I was driving up in the northern part of Ohio, and I saw a town that said 301. (laughs) And I'm just like, what? This is just a neighborhood. (laughs) They have their own township. This is what Bethlehem is, this small and tidy Uh, small and tiny city that has no walls, it has no official elders that have gates and structure. This is a small little little town and little suburb, if you will, even smaller than a suburb. And God is contrasting the great evil of this giant city named Jerusalem, this the shining glory of Israel, the, the center of their worship, the place in which the temple was put. And he says that from this tiny little town called Bethlehem, there will be this ruler who comes. Even though Jerusalem faces siege, Bethlehem is going to thrive. And this is interesting, of course, because of what we know about Bethlehem. But it's important at this point to see that this is how God always acts. 
He never uses the strength of man. He always does something uh, original, but in the tradition of the covenant that he established. Micah 5, 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Here, the one, the king of Judah, the lion of Judah, which was prophesied of old, the one who would sit on the throne of David, comes forth from the most unlikely place, a tiny, small city that was of disrepute. It, it had nothing at all to give. It had nothing to show for itself. For you, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. I think it's interesting that the English Standard translators didn't put an A in front of ruler. I personally like to capitalize things. If it was my translation, I would go ahead and capitalize the R on ruler. Not a ruler, not one of the rulers, to be ruler in Israel. So uh, again, in the context of Micah here, where he, Jesus, uh, well, the Holy Spirit through the prophet Micah is saying, Israel has these wayward rulers who are oppressing the people. They're destroying them. They're consuming them so that the poor are cut off, that their, their lives are, are literally ending because of their poverty. Here, God is saying, I will do away with that, and I will establish a ruler. And Isaiah, 4, uh, Isaiah 2, quoted again in Micah 4, is exactly this sort of vindication. How will the mountain of the house of the Lord be established? It will be established by one called a ruler who will come forth. And uh, in, in verse 2 it says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The coming forth of Jesus Christ was prophesied long, long ago, first to Eve, then Abraham and Sarai, also to Noah, uh, the prophets, and then Jesse and King David. And this is where the promise to Bethlehem comes about. Many of you have heard that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, but you don't know the significance of that. It's significant because of what God had done through that city already and because of the smallness of their size. Uh, when Abel is killed in the story of Cain and Abel, he is identified as one who is a shepherd. And he brings an offering to God from his flock, the first fruits of his offering. And Cain kills Abel because Cain's offering was not received. Cain did not, by the Spirit of God, perceive what right worship was, and he assumed to bring something forward. And God did not receive Cain's offering, but he received Abel's. And Abel was a shepherd. And so immediately at the beginning of Scripture, we see the right worship includes those who are shepherds who bring a sacrifice of a lamb. And then after this, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the ones who God begins to work with, we know them, of course, to be nomads who are shepherds. They are tending flocks. They're tending goats, lambs, uh, probably some camels, although they're not uh, really mentioned. They're, they're herders. They're, they're, uh, they're people who are nomads walking around with groups of, of, of uh, livestock. And so Israel, at the very beginning of her existence takes on the nature and the role of being a nation full of shepherds. Israel is a shepherding nation. And in fact, when, when Israel is going down to Egypt, they're given a special land called Goshen, which the Egyptians hated because it was just some hills, and the hills had grass, and so they decided these shepherds would go down and live in Goshen far away from the Egyptians because Egyptians hated shepherds. And this is the, the thread running throughout the whole scripture. Israel is a nation full of shepherds. Before becoming king, David himself was a shepherd. And this is, again, entering into this pattern of how God works in history. He chooses low and small and tiny things that seem unimportant. King David was supposed to rule like a shepherd, with tenderness to the flock, and at the same time, absolute terror to the lion and the bear. Many Christians today think that it's not right for a pastor to have any sort of uh, tenacity in, his, in the way that he rules the flock or oversees the flock. But I would submit to you that a shepherd who loses one or two sheep a day to a lion or a bear is no shepherd at all. He's just a hired servant who doesn't have any concern for the flock. Pastors, therefore, need to have some teeth to them. They need to have some absolute uh, 
you know, tenacity when, when the bear, bear or lion comes. Now, I want you to also think about fighting a bear or a lion today. Um, I'm sure you could talk to John Gray later, and he would tell, he's actually told me stories about people who've killed bears in Alaska. You're not allowed to hunt bears, uh, but you, you are allowed to defend yourself. But they do it with shotguns and uh, bear guns. They have special guns with special calibers to deal with bears. David didn't really have a gun. Uh, and when he tears apart lions, he's using uh, wrestling and, and probably some slings and staffs and things like this. But he's, it's personal combat. It's hand-to-hand combat. We see this again in the New Testament when Paul says that he was warring against serpents in Corinthians. I don't know about you, I'm not going to war against a serpent with anything but like a bat and a net and a phone call to the poison control center on speed dial. I'm not messing with serpents. Paul also says that he wrestled with beasts at Ephesus. Surely spiritual leadership is a form of shepherding that wrestles with those who seek to damage the flock. And this is where we see the value of Christ all the more. Not only were the rulers of Israel oppressing the people, but they weren't dealing with the the spiritual oppression from the other nations. They were letting these false cults, these idolatries, infect the nation. And they shouldn't have been at all. They should have been warring for the flock, not warring on the flock. And so God shows that David's son himself will be both the king and the chief shepherd. He says in Micah 5, 2, that he will be ruler, but then in Micah 2 and in verse 4, he will be the one who shepherds his flock in the strength that God supplies. Verse 4, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He's not going to be a ruler who brings and centralizes power to himself. And this is why we see the great danger and evil in trusting for political salvation from the government, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. They wish and to promote and promulgate a salvation for the people. If you vote me into power, everything will be right. I like to say that nobody has the answers, so I'm voting for nobody. <laughs> nobody has the answers. Nobody will be the right solution. The reason why I make that joke is because, of course, we do not look for ultimate salvation from anyone other than Jesus Christ. And if we are, we need to repent because Jesus Christ is supposed to be the ruler over his flock. And of course, this is not just political, but this is also in the family, also in our schooling. We do not look to the ultimacy of a man or a woman in leadership to be the the ruler, but rather under shepherds who are faithful to the chief shepherd. Again, whether that's in the church, government, family, etc. They, the people of God, shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Tell that to uh, the promulgators of gloom and doom in the church today. Why do, they, why do they constantly worry? Have you ever met someone who actually fully, truly believes that the Antichrist is soon to appear, although he already came 2,000 years ago, and and things are going to get darker and worse and worse, spend some time with them. Ask them how they go through their life. They don't dwell in security because they do not understand that they have a chief shepherd who is great into the ends of the earth and is becoming greater all the time through his mission of mercy in the church. He, Jesus Christ, shall be their peace. Not gloom, doom, not getting worse, not everything's falling apart. Jesus Christ sits on the throne and he's ruling. He not only sits on the throne, he's making intercession, and that comes for his people so that they will dwell in security. Christ is the good shepherd here, unlike the evil and false shepherds who consume the people. And his rule over Israel is perfect because he himself is perfect. And the reason he is perfect is because he works in the strength that the Lord supplies. It's not that Christ in his life and ministry operated from his divinity, that is, Jesus Christ, in showing us how to walk before the Father, is not walking in the power of his divinity. He's not walking in the power of his own strength, but rather walking as a man, as we'll see in Philippians 2 at the end of the message today. He, he empties himself and walks in the power that God supplies. 
God is going to leave Israel in a time of silence both before and then after in time the coming of Christ, immediately before and immediately after. Verse 3, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Christ chooses people from among his flock to be promoted to under-shepherds. Of course, they still remain sheep, and, and here you have to think poetically. Of course, these are not concrete images. They're, they're words to convey a reality. And so these under-shepherds, who are called his brothers in verse 3, are to rise up and to enter into that same shepherding that he himself does for his people. Christ invites both his apostles and disciples, that is his brothers, to join, them in, to join him in the great work of gathering together a people for God. He does not do this alone. Jesus Christ did not, uh, he of course fully establishes the church, but has been gathering the church throughout time through his under-shepherds. His body, therefore, the body of Christ, is always growing. First it grows by mission, that is, we go out. And it also grows by multiplication, that is, we have children who we raise up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, who live as tender lambs in his flock. And this is how his body grows and how he becomes great to the ends of the earth. It is not just that there is an intellectual knowledge of Jesus Christ as the ruler over the house of Israel, but also that there is a people who live as a distinct and testimonial community, testifying of the greatness of this one who is seen to be a righteous ruler, not a harsh ruler. And so we should be a distinct people. We should be this people who testifies of his greatness, and who are on mission with him. Now, I've been using the language of under-shepherd, but hear me clearly when I say this is not just about pastors. This is about everyone in the family of God taking their role in the ministry. The church is God's army, therefore, which moves forward, both proclaiming his word, which goes forth like a sword that cuts down his enemies. I want you to forever be ruined when you read the word sword. I want you to see the word S word. For the rest of your life, please try that. The word of God is a sword, which in Revelation we see comes out of the mouth of Christ. That is the word of the gospel, which goes forth and fillets open the heart. It reveals what is in the heart of every man, and it displays to that man his deep need for rebirth or a remaking at a heart level, not a trivial or intellectual or even behavioral salvation, a constitual remaking. That is, to the depth of their being and person, they need to be demonstrated as needing uh, resurrection. That is a resurrection which Christ himself uh, received for them and brings them into. And so God's army, this metaphor, of course, is not just an army of shepherds, but it's an army of those who bear the sword. They bear the word of God, and they cut down Christ's enemies. And after cutting down that man, he then is resurrected in new life, according to Romans 6, by baptism, joining that people. Uh, I Just to offend all you Star Wars lovers, myself included, uh, I'm going to use a Star Trek metaphor here. Uh-oh. If you've, if you've watched Star Trek, you know that there are these people called the Borg. And the Borg are an army. I think it's an appropriate metaphor for the church. Now, I, I realize most of you probably don't know about Star Trek. I, I haven't spent much time watching it. But the way that the Borg work, there are these mechanized robotic people, whatever. And they grab a human or a fleshy being and turn them into one of them, their own. And they... They use this term, which I think is appropriate for the mission of the church. They assimilate. (laughs) And of course, those of you who know Star Trek know the great metaphor, resistance is futile. This is what the message of the gospel is. Christ has come and you can't do anything about it. We we should not be timid in proclaiming the, the depth of the need for the sinner to receive new birth from Jesus Christ. And we should not be afraid of consoling them once they acknowledge that, that they really are truly forgiven and made new and are resurrected with him in baptism. 
this is not at all something that is foreign to us. This should be the way that we see ourselves operating as an army, ever moving forward, taking ground for Christ. Not one that is diminishing in political influence or cultural relevancy, uh, one that is going away anytime soon. We're here for the long haul. Jesus told us to occupy until he comes. And the way that we do that is we begin to operate like he operates, by tending the flock. Now here, I'm not, I'm not calling for political activity. I'm not calling for you to uh, start petitioning people to vote for the right congressman. I'm calling you to be faithful in the very small things which he himself shows are the way that he shepherds his flock. This is exactly how Christ accomplishes his victory against his enemies today. Verse 5, he shall be their peace, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Here is an imagery of this one that is the ruler of Israel who defeats the Assyrians. And here the Assyrians are an image of the nations who try to oppress the people of God, that is the church. And so Christ in verse 5, he shall be their peace. And when the Assyrian comes into the land, he's going to raise up seven people like him, seven shepherds, and, and Micah uses this poetic flourish, eight princes of men. The idea is that there is a great multitude ready to take their place on the line, that is to uh, push back the nations. Verse 6, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. I'm not telling you to buy guns and go over to modern-day Assyria and fight people. Of course, you understand the metaphor, hopefully, at this point, that these people, these ones who are risen up, are supposed to shepherd with something in particular, and that is not their own ideas, not their own uh, emphases, but rather the sword, which, of course, is the word of God, as we see it coming out of Jesus' mouth in Revelation. Jesus Christ raises up these shepherds, puts a sword in their hand, and tells them to move forward and defeat those who would uh, harm his people. And so here we see the mission of the church in full plain view. We are to be entering into that same activity that Jesus Christ does. This is how God always works, of course. He shames the glory of man and uses something small and humble and then makes it bright and beautiful and displays it for all the world to see. When the whole world was corrupted before the days of, of Noah, the, the whole world had turned aside to evil. God chose a small family. Now, of course, when you and I hear that Noah had three sons, we think to ourselves, man, that was radical. He had three kids? <laughs> That's a lot of kids. You know, most of us know families who have one kids, two kids, you know, a few kids. But in that day, Noah's three sons without any daughters is actually a very small family. It's hard to see that unless you think about it closely. But here, the whole entire earth had become corrupted, and God chose eight people to save humanity through. When desiring to bless all the families of the earth, he chose two people, again, Abraham and Sarah, who had no family at all. God says, I'm going to bless all the families. Let me choose two people who don't have any kids. Right? When beginning uh, to bring his people out of bondage, that is, when Israel was living in Egypt, he chose a baby who was floating in a basket on a river. That is uh, the most precarious and um, terrifying thing to do if you are a parent, to put your child in a basket and send them down the river. Uh, I wouldn't do that. And uh, you shouldn't do that either. If, if you think you're being called by God to... Uh, never mind. When looking for a man to be on the throne of Israel, he chose David, a young man who sat on hills... He's not sitting on thrones. He's not involved in important courtly matters of governmental rulership. He chooses a man who spent his time singing songs on hills while he watched some sheep. And I don't know about you, I, wouldn't, I would rather be in an air-conditioned room or in this, at this time of year, a well-heated room, uh, you know, having someone else play music for me. Um, this is not at all a great young man. This is a lowly, small peasant boy. Uh, David is probably a very young man, maybe not even a, a, what we would consider an adult at the time that he's chosen. Maybe, I don't know. You know, it's, it's hard to know from the context exactly how old he is. But 
David certainly isn't a trained and groomed professional. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time at various companies now, and every once in a while I get to work with a, a, what you call a C-level executive, a CEO, a CFO, et cetera. And uh, I've, I've begun to see that they have these training programs, which are like after an MBA, after college, you know, it's like school for the initiated, you know. And they, have, they call them grooming classes, where they train people for leadership. This isn't David at all. He's a simple person who is faithful in his worship of Yahweh. And so God chooses someone to sit on the throne who mostly sat on a hill. Paul teaches us this in 1 Corinthians 1.27. He says to the church that you have been saved in this very same way. He says right before this verse, there were not many mighty, not many noble. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God is fully judging Israel, not just with exile, not just with siege, but by the fact that he brings forth a ruler outside of Jerusalem, showing that he will not tolerate their unfaithful leadership. In taking on flesh, Christ himself becomes small. And this is where it, it pays to meditate on the nature of what we're about to celebrate this coming week at Christmas. When Christ takes on flesh, he enters into Mary's womb, and he uh, is hidden away from the world. His glory, which he uh, veils as he takes on flesh, literally cannot be seen. I, uh, I, many, I think everyone knows that we're expecting. We've, we announced that a while ago. And as a, as a first-time expector, um, my constant desire is to see this child uh, and to know whether or not he will be, or he or she will be a boy or a girl. Um, we, we intentionally do not call our child it. Um, it's not an it, it's a he or she. And, um, but what strikes me the most is how secret and hidden childbirth is, or, for, or uh, pregnancy. That is, you can't see at all what's going on. You can see some of the effects, but uh, other than that, you have no insight to this. This is what it means when Christ takes on flesh. He becomes low and small and hidden away and humble and away from the sight of the world. And this is what God calls fulfilling the promises that he made to Israel of long ago. He is doing this by taking on humility. Even when he's born, as we're going to celebrate this week. He is born in a relatively small place, not even in an inn proper, but in a barn with animals, in a relatively obscure country that was just a small territory of a large empire in the earth. This morning I watched one of those videos, perhaps you've seen it, where they show the earth, and then they zoom out, and you see Saturn and Jupiter, and then they zoom out, and you see the sun, and then you zoom out, this is what Christ is doing in, in taking on flesh. He is choosing the smallest possible level in which to enter into humanity. By taking on humanity, he himself embraces humility completely. And he embraces this humility not just in his life and in his birth, but also in his ministry. He was not the, the leader of Israel on a national level at the time of his itinerant ministry, walking around with a rugged group of followers, you can kind of imagine like a Robin Hood-like trip throughout Israel for three years, walking around in a desert, not at the center of power, not confronting Herod publicly in the open spaces. Christ is doing ministry among townspeople, among locals, among those who are sick, those who need help, those who are troubled, spiritually oppressed. Christ chooses a ministry that is relatively small and obscure, and then through his death, he embraces humility completely. This is where we meet up with Philippians, and this is the last place we're going to spend time in the scripture today, Philippians 2. Paul tells the Christians to take on this sort of mindset in the way that they understand themselves to be entering into the calling of God on their lives. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is not constantly frustrated with his position in life. He's not attempting to unveil his glory through anything other than the cross. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. I have uh, just recently become acquainted with a number of new theologians that I've been uh, not acquainted with, but I know of them, and, and one of them uh, produced a, a 12 DVD series on the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 16, and really 13 through 17. And, and one of the things that they have at the pinnacle of their treatment of those passages, if you're familiar with what happens, Jesus has gathered his disciples. He is about to die, and uh, the whole book of John is, you know, 21 chapters, and Jesus is dealing with the things that are most important to him in the passages in John 13 through 17, and he does something in the middle of his teaching which fully demonstrates the authenticity of what he's saying. He's saying that he's about to go to the Father, and he's about to express his love for his disciples, but he knows that none of them will make it to the actual event. He knows that none of them will have the courage to uh, stay with him through his temptations and trials and beatings and scourgings, and so he, uh, he shows them how much he loves them and what he does, it says, and knowing that he had come from God and was going to God, he arose from the table and removed his outer garment and dressed himself like a servant. And then he comes to each one of them and begins to wash their feet with water and prepare them. And he does this to say that he washes them and then they have fellowship with him. I don't know about you, but that's amazing to me that Christ would, would not only live in human, human, uh, in a human condition, that is, he takes on humanity, unites with us, identifies with us, but he also uh, takes on the form of a servant and literally serves his disciples. And so, this is exactly what we are uh, experiencing when we come to Christ. We're experiencing one who is willing to wash us, willing to deal with those things that need cleaned up in our life, and then he calls us to take on the same role and to enter into that service. Verse 8 uh, says that he became obedient not just in an abstract way, but to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because Christ embraced this humble calling for us, we are liberated. We're liberated to serve and embrace a humble calling in relatively obscure places that seem like they're unimportant. So my message to you today, as we approach uh, Christmas, is to not despise the day of small beginnings. And this is hearkening back to Zechariah. And I, I want to actually read uh, something that uh, a blogger wrote at the Gospel Coalition this week, and then we'll um, have our, our Advent lighting and, and communion. But it, it's a, it's a uh, series of applications. It, if you want to look this up later, it was given by a, a pastor out of Omaha, Nebraska, named Eric Raymond, and it's at the Gospel Coalition. You can search for it. But he gives some applications to identifying with the smallness of Jesus Christ's coming and the fact that he calls you into that very same smallness of service, that very same obscurity, where you're tempted to think that what you're doing really doesn't matter. You're tempted to think that what you're involved in is relatively unimportant, that it would be much better for you to be involved in a national conversation and to be promoting your content uh, at a national level and, have, and gather followers to yourself. Or, or if you're in the service of ministry, maybe you're only ministering to a few people. Maybe you're not ministering to hundreds or thousands, and you feel like that is just pointless. Eric Raymond's message and, and my reading of his in this application is, do not despise small things. God only uses small things. And so Eric Raymond uh, says this, do not despise the small things of prayer by means of which God changes people's hearts. Don't despise the small things of service in a local church by which God is glorified and people are encouraged. Don't despise the small things of working in the seemingly insignificant place like the church nursery, by which you reflect Christ's love and compassion to the most tender and the ones who need it. Don't despise the small things like daily Bible reading, by which your heart is transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't despise the small things of daily obedience and sacrifice, through which your heart is trained 
and molded after the Savior. Don't despise the small things of putting sin to death by which you are responding to the victory that Christ has won you. This is especially important for myself. It feels when you're tempted that overcoming that temptation, you're just putting off the time until you fall again. Uh, but it, it really is a manifestation of the victory of Christ. Don't despise the small things like a true quotient of gospel joy or a true manifestation of gospel joy because these things indicate that you are alive and that God is thrilling your soul with his son. Don't despise the small things like not getting bitter and walking in the spirit by which you promote the power of the gospel. Again, I'm going to interrupt Eric Raymond, but yesterday I was at Home Depot and I was buying a, a lot of Christmas gifts and I also found a Christmas gift for myself, which is a, a second compact drill, an impact drill from Ryobi. And it was used. Uh, it wasn't used, but it was returned, and it didn't have a box. I like to buy things cheaply. And so it had the battery bolted onto it, and it was uh, like uh, in a clamp device, and it was just an Allen wrench, and the Allen wrenches were 20 feet away from me, and I could have opened it myself, but the lady took it from me, at the counter, and she had one of the attendants go and run it to the back, and they ran all the way to the back of Home Depot to find an already used Allen wrench, and then 10 minutes later, all the way back at just to buy a cheaper drill. And I didn't know this at the time, and I, I hope you're not assuming that this is me giving an example to promote my righteousness, but after the fact, I had this revelation that I didn't even think about complaining while I was standing there. I was just standing there patiently waiting. And that's not a sanctification that I produced in myself. When you see those moments in your life, take courage. Don't despise the small little sanctifications that Christ is doing in you. Don't despise, don't despise the small things like respecting and submitting to your husband by which you showcase the beauty of Christ's submission to his father or for you uh, husbands, don't despise the small things like daily loving, leading, and teaching your wife. Through these things, you begin to more clearly reflect Christ's love for the church. Don't, don't despise the small things like honoring your parents, by which you demonstrate that there is a God who is bigger than you, whose authority you value. Don't despise the small things like working hard at your job or at school every day. In these things, you show that there is something more profound, more powerful, and more worthy than the fluctuating value of the American dollar. Don't despise the small things like speaking of Christ to others by which unbelievers may come to trust and treasure Jesus. Don't despise the small things of corporate worship, the singing of songs, and the preaching of the word, through which there is an announcement of God's kingdom and conquest of our Lord Jesus. And there is a growing and a swelling and an ever-expanding group of constituents in his kingdom. Finally, don't despise the small things like little churches. It is by such things that God depopulates hell through the preaching of his gospel. This is what we're called to as Christians, small, tiny, faithful obedience in little, tiny, seemingly insignificant things by which God is remaking the world. And that's what happens when Christ comes at Christmas. So let's pray. Lord, of course, we do know that you wish to impact the nations with your gospel. And so, Lord, we don't want to retreat to, uh, to uh, weakness or retreat to a lack of excellence, Lord, but we wish for a faithfulness in small things day by day. And Lord, we know that we can only do this by seeing how you became small for us, how you became humble, both in your life and in your death. Lord, we pray that you would give us a vision for small, faithful obedience that's done in the power that you supply alone. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.